Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, April 16th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, April 17th, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. What's going on, Jasmine? Hello, I'm doing pretty good. Um, I'm personally not celebrating anything, but it's it's a big week for Abrahamic religions. So it's, we're currently in Passover, we're in Ramadan, and it is also the end of Holy Week, coming up on the end of Christian Holy Week. That's right. So... So when this airs, it will be Easter Sunday. So happy Easter to everyone who is celebrating and everyone who's celebrating all of the holidays this weekend. Um, Hope you had a good time during the season. Yeah, Um, and if if you're a pagan like myself, uh, it's really been beautiful just it being spring in the Northeast right now. So I was just about to say happy spring. How's How's it looking in New York? You guys got blossoms on the trees yet? It's beautiful. Yeah, like the cherry blossoms are out at the Botanic Garden. It's a night. I think it's going to rain later today because, you know, that's how April is. Like you win some, you lose some as far as the weather. But right. it's, um, it's a beautiful day so far. And, it, you know, you, you, you can feel that the better weather is coming. It's, it's, you know, putting up a fight to push through the rain and the chilliness. So I actually miss the rain in New York because, you know, it doesn't really rain in Southern California. So it it's probably in Southern California. Right? It's only rained, um, I think, twice since I've been here since January. So every time I'm like running outside, like, oh, my gosh, let me get out here and feel this natural rain. And then it goes away and it's just hot, which I love. But um. You sound like my friend. She said the same thing. But, Brees, I'm disappointed you didn't sing with me. Oh, they tell me. <laughs> on the east coast, or the on the other, other side, side of the town, town it, it never rains. rains. Okay, let's stop. Karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a great time in music. Like, just spending time with, you know, put that that radio on Spotify and just rock out. It's a really good time. So, yeah feeling my age here but back that's in our day right back in our day when music was music right <laughs> no offense to the musicians of today but you know it's hard to catch that vibe it's hard to catch that vibe um but you know just for just for purposes the weather in california has been actually kind of chilly this week um so yeah. which is weird it's been in the 60s and i'm just like okay but we had like really great weather in March. So it's, it's kind of strange, but whatever. It's still beautiful. And today is actually a little cloudy. I hope it clears out. Mm. Yep. Anyways, so on the docket for today, our local news story will be about New York's lieutenant government being charged with bribery and fraud. Our national news story is about the fatal police shooting of Patrick Laoya in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The world news segment will be about a boat carrying migrants that capsized off the coast of Libya. And for good news, Spain votes to give a lagoon personhood. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, take it away. Hey guys, Emily here. And here is the local news. So I got the information for this story from an April 13th NPR article by Ayana Archie 
uh, titled New York's Lieutenant Governor Resigns After Being Charged with Bribery and Fraud. The article explains, quote, New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin has resigned after a federal court announced charges of bribery and wire fraud against him Tuesday for procuring illicit campaign funds. Benjamin surrendered to the FBI Tuesday morning. His case is being handled by the Southern District Court of New York. I have accepted Brian Benjamin's resignation effective immediately, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said on Twitter. While the legal process plays out, it is clear to both of us that he cannot continue to serve as lieutenant governor. Benjamin, 45, of Harlem, was appointed as lieutenant governor in August 2021. He's being charged with one count of federal program bribery and one uh, one count of honest services wire fraud, one count of conspiracy to commit those offenses, and two counts of falsification of records. The charges carry with them a conviction of 5 to 20 years in prison per count. While, the state senator in tw- uh, while a state senator in 2019, Benjamin was granted $50,000 to use in his district towards, toward entities such as libraries, schools, and nonprofit organizations, according to the indictment. The money allegedly went to a nonprofit ran by a real estate developer who Benjamin had approached about fundraising. Initially, the, the developer voiced uncertainty about being able to procure, procure campaign funds for Benjamin, but upon receipt of the grant, contributed $25,000 to Benjamin's re-election campaign, the Justice Department said. Quote, between October 2019 and January 2021, the real estate developer allegedly continued to secure campaign money for Benjamin's unsuccessful run for New York City Comptroller. In an effort to conceal the scheme, Benjamin allegedly failed to provide the New York State Board of Elections with documentation identifying the owner's of all limited liability corporations, or LLCs, who contributed to campaigns. When a staff member asked him about it, Benjamin allegedly asked, what happens if someone refuses to provide the information? In February 2020, the state's campaign finance board told Benjamin his funds for his comptroller campaign could not be matched because they were deposited using sequentially numbered money orders. Benjamin's campaign staff then allegedly submitted forms that falsely stated who the funds were procured by. After being appointed as lieutenant governor, Benjamin allegedly lied on forms about his relationship with donors, stating that he never uh, directly exercised governmental authority concerning a matter of a donor he directly solicited. Um, So yeah, so that is that story uh, from the article um, so this this news broke right before the and New York City subway attack earlier this week. So I think it sort of got buried under all of that news that's been happening um, and was covered a lot less than it would have been otherwise. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know it, for me it was like, whoa, big news. But then I know other people who just kind of rolled their eyes because it's, oh, it's just another corrupt New York politician, you know, tale as old as time. So... Lots of ways of seeing this news, I think. Wow, thank you for that story, Emily. Um, yeah, this is unfortunate and sad to say, like she said, it's not <laughs> it's not surprising. Um but when do you have do you know, Jasmine, when his term began? Like it, did his term begin in twenty twenty two? It began in like I think she said August twenty twenty one. Like, Dad, he just got Jeez, in there. He didn't even make a year. Like yeah. yikes. So he not a flop because like <laughs> it's not even like you had a damn career you know like you get in there and like within a matter of months 
Yeah, it almost seems like he went in there with intentions to steal money. <laughs> I hate to you know, say it that way, crazy. but you yeah, know, and so- I see, you know, because he wasn't, he was the lieutenant governor, but this was like he had a failed campaign to be the comptroller, which I think is where a lot of the money was going. So that was before he got to be lieutenant governor. And now right. it's like caught up to him. You know, I mean, it's sad to say the stories like this just make me think like, you know, the whole obviously people don't we're we're going through a time which probably has been in an existence way before now where people just don't trust, you know, politicians even more every day. There's so many reasons um, for us to lack trust in the system, the way it's designed. Right. But this just really solidifies everybody's fear um, that, you know what are we really voting for? Like, what are, what are we really, you know, putting people in place? Like, why do we believe in these public offices when so many people are brought down because of corruption, thievery, bribery, and all of these horrible things that, you know, should not be the tale of politicians? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like, it does erode trust. And I also think the way that our political system is set up with the fact that you even need to raise money in order to run for office. It's a problem, you know, because I think it lends itself to situations where like certain types of people are more attracted to the idea of running for office and becoming a politician, because it can be about your connections and who you know, and who will back you financially and not about, what your intentions actually are once you get into office. I also think on the flip side, let's say you do have someone that genuinely, you know, they want to do the right thing as far as policy or whatever, but they, they're they already dead in the water because they're not being bankrolled by like millionaires or whatever. It might push them to do some shady stuff thinking, well, as as soon as I get in office, then I'll do the right thing. Right. You know, so just the fact that you have this barrier of entry of money for politics is a huge pro- like I think it just it's kind of motivating people to Yeah, interrupt. I think it, it can motivate a lot of people in different directions and then this is the end result. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I have a friend that's running for office um somewhere down south. I think it's down south somewhere and when I seen her, you know, she's always been um really just active socially and uplifting the community and things of that nature. And, you know, she put a lot of work into learning the system before she decided to jump and go in. And I remember having conversations with her and other people when I was in grad school that would suggest like, oh, you might be good for public office, Teresa. Have you ever thought about doing that? And my first thought in my mind was like, no, because I feel like it will devalue my work or my message. Like, I don't want to be one of them. You know what I'm saying? And that's so sad because I think there's a lot of great leaders out here in the community that if given the opportunity without all of the red tape, the cost and all of the flack that comes with being a part of the politics would do really good work. But it it, it not only like a disservice to people, it really demotivates people who would take that plunge and hop into the arena to actually make a difference in people's lives. A problem with our political system that isn't talked about enough, like just in order to get into it, it's like you have to sully yourself to some degree 
And this this guy, Brian, was, I don't know if it's because he's black or whatever, but he seems like unluckier than most because he didn't get very far at all. You hear about a lot of this stuff and it's going back years that they've been, you know, doing shady things and getting money when they weren't supposed to. But he found out the hard way that, you know, he wasn't going to be the one to get away with it. So yeah it's unfortunate you know it's Mm -hmm. like there's so many other things for us to combat in life and now you know with stereotypes and just bias and bullshit now you know we have these examples of just like i swear it sounds like he just got in just to just to do this you know it's Um, it's wild and that'll be his legacy right it won't even matter if he actually did anything that mattered his legacy will be that you were corrupt (laughs) period point blank yeah, and imagine how you would feel if this is somebody that you believed in. You like maybe you knew him coming up, and you're like, "Oh yeah, so and so," and then this happens, right. you know. Or like if you were putting in time, effort, money, whatever to support someone on the campaign trail because you want to be supportive, and then you find this out, you know. Like we we already have a crisis in this country with people, you know, not wanting to vote not believing that their vote matters. And I think, you know, sometimes that way of thinking is dismissed by a lot of people, but that's a legitimate way to feel. Like when you see how far money goes to influence things, when you see the extent of the corruption amongst elected officials, I don't blame people who, you know, they check out or, you know, maybe they try for a little bit and they're like, this isn't, you know, they see what they have to get involved in or what types of compromises they're expected to make. It's really, it's a broken system. Something's got to give. Exactly. And the saddest part is, you know, there's really no clear pathway to fixing things like this, um, which is, you know, I feel like we, we often get to that point in these discussions on our show where it's like, well, where do we start? You know, what do we do? You know, how do we begin to solve these problems, um, that we bring, um, to light on the show and it's really person by person, you know, branch by branch, position by position, uh, really going through and you can't even tell people's real intentions because people can be swayed for various reasons to be corrupt in their work. So I wonder who's next up on the plate. <laughs> it's a mess, girl. It really is. Uh, well, I guess it's time for a music break to break up the corruption. <laughs> oh, God. And what a song. Yes, girl. So I, in my search this morning, I was so hyped to find this track. I had never heard it before. So um, uh, yeah. No, and I'm Anita fan, and I had never heard this one, so it was I felt it very befitting. Our first track of the day is called Funkier Than a Mosquito's Tweeter, and it is by the incomparable Nina Simone. We'll be right back. Talking about heaven glory, but on your face is a different story. Clean up your rap, your story's getting dusty. Wash out your mouth, your lies are getting rusty. Can't believe in nothing you say. Cause I'm around and I see what you do. You know you're funkier than a 
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. All right. So next up is our national news story. Um, information from this article was pulled from a April 13th New York Times article titled Videos Show Police Officer Fatally Shooting Black Man in Michigan. And the author is Mitch Smith. The police in Grand Rapids, Michigan, released video on Wednesday showing a white officer fatally shooting Patrick Laoya, a 26-year-old black man, after a struggle during a traffic stop last week. The officer, who has not been named, was lying on the back of Mr. Laoya before he appeared to shoot him in the head. In the seconds before the shooting, Mr. Laoya and the officer wrestled on the ground and seemed to be fighting over control of the officer's taser. When I saw the video, it was painful to watch. Mark Washington, the Grand Rapids city manager, said, and I immediately asked what caused this to happen and what could, more could have been done to prevent this from occurring. Even before the release of the footage, the case exposed longstanding tensions in Grand Rapids, a city of about 200,000 people where 18% of residents are black. Activists aired their frustrations and grief Tuesday night during the city commission meeting, speaking for hours about what they described as years of inaction on police issues by Grand Rapids leaders, and then protested through the evening on Wednesday after the videos were released. The investigation into the officer's action was ongoing, officials said on Wednesday, and no charging decisions had been made. Chief Eric Winstrom of the Grand Rapids Police said he was not aware of any weapons other than the officer's gun and taser being found at the scene. Police body camera videos show the officer telling Mr. Laoya that he is pulling him over because his license plates do not match his car. A New York Times investigation last fall revealed that American police officers over the previous five years have killed more than 400 motorists who were not wielding a gun or a knife or under pursuit of a violent crime. The Times found that police culture and court precedents significantly overstated the dangers to officers at vehicle stops. Police killings of black men have dominated national discussions about law enforcement in recent years, particularly after the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer in 2020, touched off protests across the country, including in Grand Rapids. Already this year, more than 250 people have been fatally shot by on-duty police officers nationwide, according to a Washington Post database, close to the pace from both 2020 and 2020. I'm sorry, from 2020 and 2021, when more than 1,000 people were shot dead by the police. In Grand Rapids, officials said that the police officer who fired the fatal shot joined the department in 2015. Mr. Laoya immigrated to the United States from the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 2014 and had lived in Grand Rapids for about five years, according to the office of Ben Crump, a lawyer for the family. The video clearly showed that this was unnecessary, excessive, and fatal use of force against an unarmed black man who was confused by the encounter and terrified for his life, Mr. Crump said. He called for the officer to be fired and prosecuted. The videos released on Wednesday showed Mr. Laoya driving through a residential area on a cold, rainy morning of April 4th when the officer pulled him over. 
Mr. Laoya steps out of the car, the video shows, and appears confused as the officer tells him to get back in the car. The officer asks Mr. Laoya whether he speaks English. Mr. Laoya responds that he does speak English and asks, what did I do wrong? After a brief exchange about whether Mr. Laoya has a driver's license, the officer grabs Mr. Laoya, who pulls away and starts to run. The video footage shows. The officer tackles Mr. Laoya in a nearby lawn, yelling stop, as Mr. Laoya appears to try to regain his footing. At one point, body camera footage shows Mr. Laoya grasping for the taser that is in the officer's hand. Chief Winstrom said he believed that the taser was fired twice during the encounter, but that it did not hit anyone. Midway through the struggle, the officer's body camera stops filming. Chief Winstrom said pressure was applied to the camera to turn it off during the struggle. It was not clear who applied that pressure or whether it was intentional. Other cameras from the officer's vehicle, a nearby doorbell security system, and a bystander's cell phone capture different portions of the encounter. Shortly before the fatal shot is fired, the officer yells, let go of the taser. Mr. Laoya is facing the ground and pushing up, and the officer on top of him in the moments, the officer is on top of him moments just before the shooting. Chief Winstrom called the shooting a tragedy, but declined to say whether he thought the officer followed department policy or state law, citing the investigations into the case. The officer is on paid leave and his police powers have been suspended, officials said. In a statement, Governor Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer expressed sympathy to Laoya family and called for any protests to be peaceful. The Michigan State Police will conduct a transparent, independent investigation of the shooting, said Ms. Whitmer, a Democrat and former prosecutor. Then prosecutors must consider all the evidence, following, follow the law, and take appropriate action on charges. Justice is foundational to safety, and without justice, we are all less safe. Mr. Laoya's death was the latest in a series of incidents that have strained relations between residents and the Grand Rapids Police. In 2017, officers searching for a middle-aged woman wanted, to, wanted for a stabbing instead handcuffed an 11-year-old girl at gunpoint while she was leaving the house. The officers were not disciplined. Months prior, other Grand Rapids officers held five innocent teenagers at gunpoint, and in 2020, local outlets reported an officer was suspended for two days after shooting a protester in the face with a gas canister. City data from 2020 showed that black residents who responded to a survey said they had less trust in Grand Rapids police than their white and Hispanic neighbors did. We've constantly, constantly been talking about the harassment and the brutality that's been done right here. Clee Jackson, the president of the Greater Grand Rapids NAACP, said in a new news conference after the video was released. A spokeswoman from, for the Michigan State Police, the agency handling the case, declined to say when the investigation might be finished and handed over to prosecutors for a charging decision. Christopher Becker, the prosecuting attorney in Kent County, Include, which includes Grand Rapids, last week urged the police to hold off on releasing the video until the state police investigation was complete. Chief Winstrom, who took over the police chief last month, responded to say he would release the video by the end of the week, though he did not set a date for release until Tuesday afternoon. I think I can uh, stop there. There's just one little last piece. By evening um, on Wednesday, hundreds of protesters had gathered downtown, including outside the police station that had been surrounded with concrete barricades, yelling, justice for Patrick, shut it down. So that's the recap of this horrible 
story. Um, and there are some elements in this story that may are a little different from our normal talk about police shootings, but there's so much of the same one, you know, obviously there may have been a bit of a language barrier in this um, story here. The fact that Mr. Laoya got out of the car, um, it's not clear whether or not the officer told him to get out or not. They did not release the name of the officer, which is another thing that is different. And then finally, um, that if, if you had an opportunity to watch the video, which was horrific, the video ends before the gunshot. So, Yeah, he cut it off, didn't he? They said that it was the pressure applied to the, the camera when he was on top of him. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, quite honestly, watching it, I, I, I don't think I would have been able to handle seeing that part. You just kind of hear it. Um, but it's, man, it's, it's so tragic. And those numbers in the because article. Because of the license plate not matching. Right. All of that. This is why this happened because of that. All of that. You know, it's just it just makes me so sick. You know, it's it's really and like in the Detroit news, there was an article talking with his family and his mother and his father, the victim's mother and father, Peter and Dorcas Lyola, Lyola said that they left the Congo to escape violence. They never expected to find it in America. You know, it's really. I don't know if he if Patrick came here as an adult and there was perhaps some kind of a language barrier, but even if there wasn't, you know, the fact that it went from something with the license plate to this escalation and now the person is dead shot in the back of the head. I believe like the shot in the back of the head. Just like take that in. They thought something was suspicious about your license plate, or not even suspicious, something was somewhat odd. And then someone who has the state power to kill you with no repercussions, you end up dead shot in the back of your head. There's there's nothing normal about that. No, not at all. Um, The article says he was 26 and he had lived in Grand Rapids for five years, so he must have come here when he was 21. Um. You know, while he they asked him if he spoke English, and he said he did. Um, clearly, it looks like he did not understand. Like in the video, you can tell when he got out the car, he was completely confused. He was confused as to what was happening, and I don't feel like they attempted to de-escalate at all. I really don't. Um, and it's like what this this happened because he started to walk away. I mean, he did take off, but can you blame him? You know what I'm saying? He kind of like. Do- like okay so nothing happened it's not like it's not even like it's something where like oh there was a call and this person attacked someone and it looks like you're the person who did it and they're running this is literally you just thought that the license plate was uh, you can't you give a ticket or something or citation absolutely you gotta you gotta give chase and wrestle with somebody that obviously he probably didn't speak English well enough and also culturally unknowing coming from a place where everyone is black. It's probably a very different culture being in the United States with the way black people are brought up to like understand the way police function and like the things that you do. So he probably wasn't fully familiar with that. You know what I'm saying? Like, but 
you know, like when Philando Castile that was killed, like he did everything that you are kind of brought up to be like, if an officer does this, you do this, you put your hands up, and he still ended up dead. So who's to say that he still wouldn't have gotten killed? But, you know, that's just another element to it. You have people with different levels of like language, like English language proficiency. Yeah. A very high proportion of people killed by police are mentally uh, handicapped or they have some kind of disability Mm -hmm. that can also play a part in not reading a situation or panicking and not knowing what to do. And then you're even in more danger. Yeah. It's just horrible, horrible, horrible that this happened, like literally over nothing, over nothing. There are so many uh, pieces to this, this article that were quite alarming to me as I was reading it. Um, one, you know, just before we even get into that, when you watch the video, if you have an opportunity to do so, and, you know, I'm not encouraging anybody, it is trauma. Yeah, I don't know if I could watch um, it. But, you know, I watched it for sake of this story just to have my own opinion about it. I do feel that if he was empowered to run, right, this man, this cop, he probably, this no-name cop, which is awful that they are letting him hide under this fucking veil. But he must have reached for something. You know, I'm, I'm just imagining him having his hands, you know, on his taser or whatever he was. So this man felt threatened for his life. If he did run, he didn't like take off down the block either. He kind of just like ran around the cop car, was trying to, it looked like he almost went up on the residence lawn. You know, I don't know if he was trying to get somebody's attention or what was going on, but you know, it's quite disturbing to know that, you know, there's so much fear and when against police officers that you just naturally feel inclined to just take off or do whatever you can to protect yourself. Um, In the article, the part that just had me so disheartened and also brought some enlightenment to how these stories are being reported right now. Okay, like how we are not hearing these stories, because um, I feel like in 2020, there were so many stories that came to light about police brutality and, and this, you know, that that quiet hush is going on right now. Already this year, more than 250 people have been fatally shot by on-duty police officers nationwide, according to a uh, Washington Post database. Um, mm. where, what are their names? Who are these people? And where is this happening at? Because mm. it's just like, you know, not to say I'm looking for this information on a regular basis, but as a person who does this type of work, where are these people? And, and how, you know, what is being done? How are these cases being handled? It's just really disheartening to hear this story and realize that you know the media is choosing what and what not to share and then the fact that this guy is being this cop is being protected for whatever fucking reason is just messed up it's terrible and I'm you know going back to the fact that his family came here thinking that it would be safer for the family here than in the Congo like we don't know what types of things Patrick has seen or lived through in his home country that someone like an armed person approaching you and you know, you didn't do anything that probably set off his fight or flight or whatever. Like, I don't know yeah. what's going to happen, you know, and it's, I don't even know what to say anymore. <sighs> you know, it's just, it's, very sad for his family like the pictures of his family just crying it's really hard to see 
but it's like all of this for that. It, it reminds, you know, look at what's happening. If you're in the city, the way cops will buck up and be beating people up, harassing people for it. Cause you think they skipped out on 275. Right. You got to bust somebody in their head for that. That makes sense. It's unfortunate to you know, have to report stories like this after everything we've all been through for so long. You know, you would think, I always think this. Why didn't they shoot him in the foot, the leg, the arm, the hand, any other place that he would still be alive at this moment? You know, whatever these de-escalation tactics. I, if somebody, discussed, somebody running away from you, why are you shooting, period? Like, I, I don't know. Cause no, even I agree with, with that, you. You know, because you could shoot somebody in the leg or the arm and you hit an artery there paralyzed they're Absolutely. dead anyway so i it's too many guns period i agree and i'm not justifying shooting at all i'm just saying whatever these de-escalation tactics right that are being, yeah you know discussed or reviewed or enforced or not enforced as we see definitely should not go they shot this man in the back in of the his back head. of his head you know like, that's no type on. of if you were able to shoot him in the back of the head he could not have been a threat to you right so at the end of the day, you know, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what they're telling people to do in these cases, because that's definitely not the right way to move. Yeah. You judge jury executioner for somebody because of a license plate. Unbelievable. You know, but um, prayers up for his family. It's, I can't even imagine. Like losing a child is horrible and losing them this way has to be twice as bad. Like. Absolutely. And prayers up for the people in Grand Rapids, Michigan, all of you that are out there protesting. Thank you for bringing the story to light because we can't stop. We can never stop this journey of killing and brutality that we all exist in by some grace every day. I'm going to go ahead and go into our next music break. This song is called Zombie and it's by Fela Kuti and Africa 70. We'll be right back. Zombie, oh zombie, zombie, oh zombie, zombie, oh zombie, 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 not go stop unless you tell him to stop. Zombie, not go turn unless you tell him to turn. Zombie, not go think unless you tell him to think. Zombie, oh zombie. Zombie, oh zombie. Tell him to go straight. Na joro jara joro. No break, no jam, no sense. Na joro jara joro. Tell him to go kill a Joro Jara Joro. No break, no jar, no sense. A Joro Jara Joro. Tell him to go quench a Joro Jara Joro. No break, no jar, no sense. A Joro Jara Joro. Go and kill. Go and die. Go and quench. Put up all the vast. Go and quench. Go and kill. Go and die. Put up all the vast. Go and die. If 
you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have Jasmine with our world news update. So um, this is a news story that is, it's new in that this is a recent incident, but it's not new in that these things have been happening for a long time. It's just another in a long line of such incidents. Um, This is from the AP News, well, this is from the Associated Press, uh, written by Sami Magdi, uh, today, Saturday, April the 16th. UN says boat capsizes off Libya, 35 dead or presumed dead. A migrant boat has capsized off the Libyan coast, leaving at least 35 people dead or presumed dead, the UN Migration Agency said Saturday. The shipwreck took place Friday off the western Libyan city of Sabratha, a major launching point for the mainly African African migrants making the dangerous voyage across the Mediterranean, said the International Organization for Migration. The IOM said the bodies of six migrants were pulled out while 29 others were missing and presumed dead. It was not immediately clear what caused the wooden boat to capsize. The tragedy was the latest to involve migrants departing from North Africa to seek a better life in Europe. This past week alone, at least 53 migrants were reported dead or presumed dead off Libya, according to the IOM. Dedicated search and rescue capacity and a safe disembarkation mechanism are urgently needed to prevent further deaths and suffering, the IOM said. Investigators commissioned by the United Nations' top human rights body found evidence of possible crimes against humanity committed in Libya against migrants detained in government-run prisons and at the hands of human traffickers. Earlier this month, more than 90 people in an overcrowded boat drowned in the Mediterranean Sea days after they left Libya, according to the Doctors Without Borders aid group. Migrants regularly try to cross the Mediterranean from Libya in a desperate attempt to reach European shores. The country has emerged as the dominant transit point for migrants fleeing war and poverty in Africa and the Middle East. Human traffickers in recent years have benefited from the chaos in Libya, smuggling in migrants across the oil-rich country's lengthy borders with six nations. The migrants are then typically packed into ill-equipped rubber boats and set off on risky sea voyages. At least 476 migrants died along the central Mediterranean route between January 1st and April 11th of this year, according to the IOM. Once back in Libya, the migrants are typically taken to government-run detention centers rife with abuse and ill treatment. Um, And for those of you who might not be familiar with um, the geography of Libya, it borders six other countries, Egypt, Sudan, Niger, Chad, Tunisia, and Algeria. Um, And I know that that was just a brief summary of the most recent 
uh, instance of a boat capsizing off the coast, um, but I would encourage you to read uh, a, a longer read um, in the New Yorker. Um, it was written by Ian Urbina in November of 2021. And the title of that article is um, The Secretive Prisons That Keep Migrants Out of Europe. So it gives a lot of background on um, the historical moment that we're in, like a lot of um, differences, like changes and policies that have been happening over the past 10 to 15 years in Europe and also in Libya that is contributing to this. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from that long read now. In the past six years, the European Union, weary of the financial and political costs of receiving migrants from sub-Saharan Africa, has created a shadow immigration system that stops them before they reach Europe. It has equipped and trained the Libyan Coast Guard, a quasi-military organization linked to militias in the country, to patrol the Mediterranean, sabotaging humanitarian rescue operations and capturing migrants. The migrants are then detained indefinitely in a network of profit-making prisons run by the militias. In September of this year, around, in this year meaning 2021, around 6,000 migrants were being held, many of them in Al-Mabani. International aid agencies have documented an array of abuses, detainees tortured with electric shocks, children raped by guards, families extorted for ransom, men and women sold into forced labor. The EU did something they carefully considered and planned for many years. Salah Margani, Libya's Minister of Justice from 2012 to 2014 told me, create a hellhole in Libya with the idea of deterring people from heading to Europe. Wow, um, thank you for that story. I always think of migrants in these situations, like for one, we can't even really fathom what type of situations they are in that make them decide to take this journey not knowing what will happen. But whatever it is, obviously, is life or death. Because if they choose this route to escape for whatever reason they need to or to move or to get out of a bad situation, it's almost like a, um, a helplessness that they're determined to overcome by leaving. And that alone is a situation that I'm not sure that many of us in America can even fathom. Um, uh, it's a part of humanity that I hope no one ever has to feel, but the reality that so many people do is what's really going on out here. Like it's, you know, when you take yourself outside of yourself and consider these circumstances, that's just one part of it. And then what happens and how they are, you know, criminalized and and victimized for so many different reasons in so many different ways, it's overwhelming. Um, again, one of those situations where what are the solutions here? It would have to be obviously systemic and so much needs to be done, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously like there's multiple different aid organizations that I know 
um, are not perfect. And like you said, the solutions to these things are systemic. It's not about just giving to charity because if you don't fix the root cause of the issue, like then nothing really changes substantially. Um, but it is like, these are problems that are driven by things like climate change, by the decisions of like powerful like Western governments to supply weapons and encourage certain types of upheaval around the world. Like those are things that push people out of their homes. Like in the long read in the New Yorker that I mentioned, um, it's very sad, but they go back and forth between talking about the broader context of what's happening in Libya and also in the European countries that are cooperating with um, the Libyan government to keep migrants out of Europe. And they also talk about individual uh, migrant stories who are caught up in them. And one of them that they named, their name is um, Aliou Kande from Guinea-Bissau. And in this individual story, it was such a it was such a clear picture of like the breadth and the depth of what you're dealing with. Because this is someone who was from a small farming family in Guinea-Bissau, a place where there's like no plumbing, there's not really electricity, like living a very simple life. But because of the effects of climate change which is not being driven by people that like barely create any waste. Like they don't really have a car, like climate change is being largely driven by like wealthy nations and like their prerogatives and the way like consumerism that's out of control, relying on fossil fuels and all of this. And then who's paying the highest price? People like him. And he literally wasn't able to, just sustain his family living his life. He wanted to, but he he couldn't do it. So he had older brothers that they had to leave the country and they were able to get jobs. So he thought, that's what I have to do to take care of myself and my children and my wife. And, you know, I, I, it's just the complete lack of regard and like no respect for the humanity of these migrants. And I think a lot of it is because they are black, like they are specifically sub-Saharan African migrants. That plays a huge part in just this cruelty and this callousness. And I don't know, it could have been that this boat capsized and it was just the weather or the water or the waves. But when you have people that are being trained to sabotage efforts to leave a country, you don't know if someone intentionally did something to make the boat flip over. You know, because this is a type of mentality that we're dealing with. People getting shot up, beat up, abused because they're being thought of and treated like they're some kind of like pest or vermin. Absolutely. Um, and as you said, you know, some of those issues with climate change and just horrible leadership and things of that nature, you know, there is no one way to handle this. The most we can do is support people in these situations, as you said, with aid um, organizations that assist migrants, but also having these conversations and spreading this knowledge is important. Um, again, because, you know, like you said, you never know why something ends in death in these situations. And um, 
Yeah, there's so many people that go through this on a regular basis. It's really sad. It really is. And I, I would say, like, instead of just giving aid, um, not that that's not important, like, there is the International Rescue um, Committee, there's Human Rights Watch, like, there's various organizations that you can support to try to help people right now. It's extremely important. And that's why I recommended that long read. You need to educate yourself about what your government is doing like in your name that is creating these conditions and you need to hold the people making those decisions accountable. If you don't have any idea what's going on in the world around you or like what your elected officials are supporting, then that's not going to be helpful like at any point to like try to address some of these root cause issues. So stuff like the climate change report that came out, these, you know, grossly irresponsible decisions by our quote unquote leaders to accelerate climate change, that's all connected to this because that's a massive reason why you have people fleeing droughts. You have people fleeing like heat waves that are not sustainable. That's why we're seeing, that's a huge part of why we're seeing like a massive increase in people leaving their homes out of desperation. So, you know, I would definitely encourage people, you know, we're not, we're all interconnected just by the nature of like globalism, colonialism, imperialism. So I would say take the step further beyond just, you know, helping aid organizations and understand like what is really at the root, because that's the only way that you're going to have like any type of long range solution to any of this. Very good. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for sharing that and the ways that we all could just be more mindful and educated about what's really going on in this world. Um, And lastly, Emily, please give us some good news for today. Uh, So I found this story via that Future Earth Instagram account that I love so much and that I talk about a lot. Uh, The information comes from an April 6th article in Spanish News Today titled Spanish MPs Vote to Give Mar Menor Lagoon Personhood and Rights. After yesterday's vote in Madrid, the Mar Menor will be the first ecosystem in Europe with its own rights. The article explains that, quote, the ministers voted on whether to give legal personhood to the Mar Menor and thus ensure its rights to protection are enshrined in law. The result result was overwhelming. 270 votes, <clears throat> sorry, 274 votes in favor, 53 against, and six abstentions. Of the 53 vote 53 votes against, 52 belonged to the far right Vox Party, who called the move an initiative to create a Soviet state in the Mar Menor where the fish can vote. Uh, following the reading of the result by the President of Congress, Marichal Batet, the pre- uh, benches of all parties broke into resounding applause. The Mar Menor, a natural lagoon in Spain's southwest Murcia region, has been blighted for years by mismanagement of the wastewater system, by illegal runoff from farmers watering their crops, which washes pesticides and other contaminants into the water, and more recently by the torrential rain in Spain. In its most dramatic episodes, this extreme level of pollution has led to shocking images of fish washed up dead on the shores of the Mar Menor in their thousands, bringing the plight of the ecosystem to global attention last August. That's part of the reason why a grassroots fight was set up for a popular legal initiative, Iniciativa Legislativa Popular, or ILP, to grant the rights of a person to the lagoon with all that entails. 
Quote, it is the first time in Europe that an ecosystem has its own rights and the move will force Spanish legislation to be modified to accommodate this legal protection. To make sure these rights are fully complied with, the lagoon is to have legal guardianship and representation by the public administrations with the support of the residents of the local municipalities in the Campo de Cartagena, as well as monitoring commission and the scientific committee. Now, after being ratified, the document will return to the Ecological Transition Committee for its members to present amendments. If everything goes smoothly, these rights could be definitively drafted in autumn. So I thought this was a very interesting story. I haven't, I may have vaguely heard of the idea of giving, you know, nature personhood rights, but the fact that it's actually something that's gotten passed in, in Europe is very interesting. Um, I think it's, it's a cool idea, you know, and the idea that if, you know, if, uh, should animals have personhood rights, you know, that humans can't just go around (laughs) smashing things and doing whatever they want. Um, yeah. And I hope, I hope it has a benefit impact. I hope it doesn't end up being like kind of an empty sort of, um, governmental bureaucracy thing. Thanks guys. Wow, that's different. Um, I, to be honest, did not know about this lagoon or the lagoon's issues and the fish uh, before this story. So, but yeah, personhood for a lagoon. Hmm. What do you think about that, Jasmine? I don't know what the word would be. Not innovative, but I think it's an interesting way to try to get people to respect um forms of other forms of life as being important and that you know we're all interconnected because I do think that um particularly within some worldviews that put man like human beings at the center of everything uh, I think that there's been a very long history of overlooking like animals nature all of that and trying to subjugate it to people instead of understanding that you know we're dependent on nature as well and like we need we need nature to survive as a species so I guess it's kind of like if you try to force people to see nature as if it's like another person like you should respect it the way you would another human being you know, so I don't know how effective it will be, but I do hope that that mindset takes hold that, you know, just because it's not a person that walks, talks, looks like you, you know, all of the living things like, and, you know, even non-living things that are a part of the natural environment, we have to protect them because, you know, we're not, we're kind of on the fast track out of here based off the way climate change is going. And it's not going to be reversed if we keep the same people first attitude that we've been having. So that's my thought. No, that's a really good perspective to take. And I think that, you know, part of me, me like trying to conceptualize this is that, you know, I haven't really, been exposed to that quite honestly um in that in that realm i think in other conversations definitely have spoken about it um in that way but it's definitely way past the time for all of us to consider thinking this way here on out you know this is not a a specific thing to that area of the the region of the country is a thing or the world is a thing that we need to 
really personify and kind of move on that energy so that we can preserve life in all forms um, and keep the world moving. You know, absolutely. When shit starts to become extinct and no longer available and when our children can't see species and things of that nature, that'll be way too late for people to wake up um, and start thinking from this perspective. So definitely good, good news and a good story to have further conversations about. So did we do it? I think we did. We did another <laughs> show. Yes. I love progression. That's awesome. So that is it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you all so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. And for our last song, you heard a little bit of it thanks to me and Reese singing earlier. But this is Tony, Tony, Tony with It Never Rains in Southern California. Happy Sunday. Bye-bye. It never rains in Southern California. Till I get there Just a kiss and squeeze and hug And girl, you know the rest as they tell me It never rains in Southern California And they tell me It never rains in Southern California Maybe I'll take a flight out tonight And you can pick me up about eight I don't know what airline girl But I know we won't Brooklyn is proud to present four amazing bands at an outstanding local venue for an evening of rock and music. Join us on Friday, May 20th at 7.30 for a night with 7th Grade Girl Fight, Dirt Bikes, Barrette, and Castle Black, and none other than Ridgewood's own Bar Frida, 801 Seneca Avenue. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased at the venue.